0: Hello, everybody. This is Kia from Wicked Majesty, and you are listening to Tea and Terror Podcast, the show that entertains with true and fictional stories from beyond the grave for people who love it. Welcome to another night of terror and classic macabre on the TN Terror Podcast. I am your host, Kia Reed. Tonight is the beginning of a new episode series that is all about Robert Louis Stevenson's chilling tale, The Body Snatcher. In the first episode of the series, Unearthing Secrets, we embark on a journey to 19th century Edinburgh, where medical schools relied on the gruesome practice of grave robbing to obtain cadavers for scientific study. Join me as we resurrect this dark tale and the shadowy characters who dared disturb the peace of the dead. Get ready for a spine-tingling exploration of a world where science and moral boundaries collide. If you are watching from the Wicked Majesty YouTube channel and it's your first time seeing my content, welcome to the Wicked Majesty channel. I post horror stories, gothic tales, and creepypastas that will get your blood rushing and nightmares beyond your imagination. If horror is your thing, then I encourage you to hit that subscribe button and ring the notification bell for updates on the Body Snatcher series and other videos I post each week. If you are a returning subscriber, thank you very much for watching my videos and subscribing. You definitely help my channel flourish, and I greatly appreciate it. If you are listening to the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, or SoundCloud, then please share the Tea and Terror podcast with others, add it to your playlist, and subscribe. Thank you all so much.
1: Every night in the year, Four of us sat in the small parlour of the George at Debenham, the undertaker and the landlord and Fetz and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would be each planted in his own particular armchair. Fetz was an old drunken scotchman, a man of education obviously, and a man of some property since he lived in idleness. He had come to Debenham years ago, while still young, and by a mere continuance of living had grown to be an adopted townsman. His blue camlet cloak was a local antiquity, like the church spire. His place in the parlour at the George, his absence from church. His old, crapulous, disreputable vices were all things of course in Debenham. He had some vague, radical opinions and some fleeting infidelities, which he would now and again set forth and emphasise with tottering slaps upon the table. He drank rum, five glasses regularly every evening, and for the greater portion of his nightly visits to the George, sat with his glass in his right hand in a state of melancholy alcoholic saturation. We called him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine and had been known upon a pinch to set a fracture or reduce a dislocation. But beyond these slight particulars, we had no knowledge of his character and antecedents. One dark winter night, It had struck nine some time before the landlord joined us. There was a sick man in the George. A great neighbouring proprietor suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament, and the great man's still greater London doctor had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Debenham, for the railway was but newly opened and we were all proportionately moved by the occurrence. He's come. He? Who? Not the doctor. Himself. What's his name?
2: Dr. McFarlane.
1: Fitz was far through his third tumbler, stupidly fuddled, now nodding over, now staring mazily around him. But at the last word he seemed to awaken and repeat the name, MacFarlane, twice, quietly enough the first time, but with sudden emotion at the second.
2: Yes, that's his name, Dr. Wolfie MacFarlane.
1: Fitz instantly became sober. His eyes awoke, his voice became clear, loud and steady, his language forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation, as if a man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon. I'm afraid I haven't been paying much attention to your talk. Who is this, Wolfie MacFarlane? And then when he heard the landlord out... It cannot be. It cannot be! And yet, I would like well to see him face to face. Did you know him, Doctor? God forbid. And yet the name is a strange
2: one. It were too much too fancy too. Tell me, Landlord. Is he old? Well, he's not a young man, to be sure. And his hair is white, but he looks younger than you. He is older, though. Years older. But it's the rum you see in my face. Rum and sin. This man, perhaps, may have an easy conscience and a good digestion. (laughs) Conscience, hear me speak. You would think I was some good old decent Christian, would you not? But no. Not I. I never canted. Walter might have canted if he stood in my shoes. But the brains with a rattling Philip on his bald head. The brains were clear and active. And I saw and made no deductions.
1: If you know this, Doctor, I should gather that you don't share the landlord's good opinion. Fetz paid no regard to me. Yes, I must see him face to face. There was another pause, and then the door was closed rather sharply on the first floor and a step was heard upon the stair.
2: That's the doctor. Look sharp, and you can catch him.
1: It was but two steps from the small parlour to the door of the Old George Inn. The wide oak staircase landed almost in the street. There was room for a turkey rug and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of the descent. But this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up, not only by the light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The George thus brightly advertised itself to passers-by in the cold street. Fitz walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, beheld the two men meet, as one of them had phrased it, face to face. Dr. Macfarlane was alert and vigorous. His white hair set off his pale and placid, although energetic, countenance. He was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth and the whitest of linen, with a great gold watch-chain and studs and spectacles of the same precious metal. He wore a broad, folded tie, white and speckled with lilac, and he carried on his arm a comfortable, driving coat of fur. There was no doubt, but he became his years, breathing, as he did, of and consideration, and it was a surprising contrast to see our parlour sot, bald, dirty, pimpled, and robed in his old camlet cloak, confront him at the bottom of the stairs. McFarlane! The great doctor pulled up short on the fourth step, as though the familiarity of the address surprised and somewhat shocked his dignity. Toddy McFarlane. The London man almost staggered. He stared for the swiftest of seconds at the man before him, glanced behind him with a sort of scare, and then, in a startled whisper, Fetis! You! Yeah. Aye, me. Did you think I was dead too? We're not so easy shot for acquaintance.
0: Hush, 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 hush. This meeting is so unexpected. I can see you are unmanned. I hardly
1: knew you, I confess at first. But
0: I am overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity. For the present, it must be howdy, day and goodbye in one. For my fly is waiting and I must not fail the train. But you shall let me see. Yes, you shall give me your address and you can count on early news of me. We must do something for you, Fetis. I fear you are out at elbows. But we must see to that for all lang syne, as once we sang at suppers.
1: Money! Money from you! The money I had from you is lying where I cast it in the rain. Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of this refusal cast him back into his first confusion. A horrible, ugly look came and went across his almost venerable countenance.
0: My dear
1: fellow, be it as you please, My last thought is to offend you.
0: I would intrude on none. I will leave you my address. However, I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you. I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I
1: wish to know if, after all, there were a god. I know now that there is none. Be gone. He stood still in the middle of the rug, between the stair and the doorway, and the great London physician, in order to escape, would be forced to step to one side. It was plain that he hesitated before the thought of this humiliation. White as he was, there was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles. But while he still paused uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at this unusual scene and caught a glimpse at the same time of our little body from the parlour, huddled by the corner of the bar. The presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. He crouched together, brushing on the wainscot, and made a dart like a serpent, striking for the door. But his tribulation was not entirely at an end. For even as he was passing, fets clutched him by the arm, and these words came in a whisper, and yet painfully distinct.
0: Have you seen it again?
1: He dashed his questioner across the open space, and, with his hand over his head, fled out of the door like a detected thief. Before it had occurred to one of us to make a move, the fly was already rattling toward the station. The scene was over like a dream, but the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day, the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold. And that very night we're all standing breathless by the boardroom window, and Fetz at our side, sober, pale, and resolute in look.
2: God protect us, Mr. Fetis. What in the universe is all this? These are strange things you have been saying.
1: Fetz turned toward us. He looked us each in succession in the face. See if you can hold your tongues. That man MacFarlane is not safe to cross. Those that have done so already have repented it too late. And then, without so much as finishing his third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us goodbye and went forth, under the lamp of the hotel, into the black night. We three turned to our places in the parlour, with the big red fire and four clear candles, and as we recapitulated what had passed, the first chill of our surprise soon changed into a glow of curiosity. We sat late. It was the latest session I have known in the old George. Each man, before we parted, had his theory that he was bound to prove, and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track out the past of our condemned companion and surprise the secret that he had shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast, but I believe I was a better hand at worming out a story than either of my fellows at the George. And perhaps there is now no other man alive who could narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. In his young days, Fett studied medicine in the School of Edinburgh, He had a talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly what it hears and readily retails it for its own. He worked little at home, but he was civil, attentive, and intelligent in the presence of his masters. They soon picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Nay, strange as it seems to me when I first heard it, he was in those days well favoured and pleased by his exterior. There was, at that period, a certain extramural teacher of anatomy, whom I shall here designate by the letter K. His name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it sculled through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise, while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of his employer. But Mr. K was then at the top of his vogue. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address, partly to the incapacity of his rival, the university professor. The students, at least, swore by his name, and Fetz believed himself, as was believed by others, to have laid the foundations of success when he had acquired the favour of this meteorically famous man. Mr. K was a bon vivant, as well as an accomplished teacher. He liked a sly illusion, no less than a careful preparation. In both capacities, Fetz enjoyed and deserved his notice, and by the second year of his attendance he held the half regular position of second demonstrator or sub-assistant in his class. In this capacity, the charge of the theater and the lecture room devolved in particular upon his shoulders. He had to answer for the cleanliness of the premises and the conduct of the other students, and it was a part of his duty to supply, receive, and divide the various subjects. It was with a view to this last, at that time very delicate affair, that he was lodged by Mr. K in the same way, and at the last in the same building, with the dissecting room. Here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, his hands still tottering, his sight still misty and confused, he would be called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who supplied the table. He would open the door to these men, since infamous throughout the land. He would help them with their tragic burden, pay them their sorted price, and remain alone when they were gone with the unfriendly relics of humanity." From such a scene he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself from the labors of the day. Few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among the ensigns of mortality. His mind was closed against all general considerations. He was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another, the slave of his own desires and low ambitions. Cold, light, and selfish in the last resort, he had the modicum of prudence— miscalled morality, which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness or punishable theft. He coveted, besides, a measure of consideration from his masters and his fellow pupils, and he had no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and, day after day, rendered unimpeachable eye-service to his employer, Mr. K. For his day of work, he indemnified himself by nights of roaring, blackguardly enjoyment, and when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called his conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him as well as to his master. In that large and busy class, the raw materials of the anatomists kept perpetually running out, and the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade.
2: They bring the body, and we pay the price. Quid pro quo. Ask no questions.
1: He would tell his assistants, for conscience' sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, he would have recoiled in horror. But the lightness of his speech upon so grave a matter was, in itself, an offence against good manners, and a temptation to the men with whom he dealt. Fetz, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies. He had been struck again and again by the hang dog, abominable looks of the ruffians who came to him before the dawn, and putting things together clearly in his private thoughts, he perhaps attributed a meaning too immoral and too categorical to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty, in short, to have three branches to take what was brought, to pay the price, and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime.
0: Well, that is our episode for the week. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more episodes coming up in the future, then definitely add the Tea and Tear to your playlist on Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also check out the show on my Wicked Majesty channel. This is Kia, and I will catch you next week. Same time, same place. Have a good night.